Welcome to Friends of Europe's Frankly Speaking podcast special on the war in Ukraine. I'm your host, Tracy Dafters, and this week I'm joined by Friends of Europe's Senior Fellow of Peace, Security and Defence and former Deputy Assistant Secretary General for Emerging Security Challenges at NATO, Jamie Shea. In this week's podcast, recorded on Thursday the 5th of May, we discuss how the fighting on the southern and eastern fronts in Ukraine is likely to evolve and what military issues the Russians are facing. We assess the risks of confrontation on the Finnish border following Finland's interest in becoming a NATO member. We turn to Ursula von der Leyen's announcement of a sixth sanctions package in the European Parliament on the 4th of May and ask what could a Hungarian veto of the EU proposal mean in practice. And finally, we talk about the recent visit of UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres to Moscow. And now that the Pope wants to enter the mediation process, are we nearing the end of diplomacy? Listen to what Jamie Shea has to say on all of these points. We're now uh, day 72 of the war in Ukraine, um, and obviously both sides are still engaged in, in you know, what is still uh, bloody battles. I just wanted to ask you, Jamie, in terms of, you know, the, the Finland and Sweden saying that they now want to become members of NATO, is there a risk uh, of Russian military buildup on the Finnish border with Russia and hence uh, a risk of confrontation there? Well, certainly the Russians have made it clear, unsurprisingly, Tracy, that they don't like the idea of Finland and Sweden joining NATO, and they've made all kinds of threats. A couple of weeks ago, the deputy head of the Russian Security Council, who in fact is also the former president, uh, Dmitry Medvedev, was uh, threatening uh, that Russia would deploy uh, nuclear weapons in the Baltic area in Kaliningrad as a response. I don't think too many people took that seriously, because Russia has nuclear weapons in Kaliningrad uh, or, or, or ready. Um, and indeed, over the last couple of days, we've seen uh, Russian helicopters violate Finnish uh, airspace. There was an incident yesterday where a Russian helicopter went five kilometers into Finnish uh, airspace. So these are sort of probes that are designed to send a signal to, to intimidate. For example, Sweden for many years has experienced uh, uh, Russian submarines uh, entering its territorial waters. In fact, in the 1980s, in the famous Whiskey on the Rocks incident, as it became known, a Russian whiskey class uh, submarine uh, actually beached it in, in Sweden. And really, sort of giving uh, the game away. So the the Swedes and the Finns are used to this sort of low-level intimidation from Russia. They've had their GPS signals sort of jammed by the Russian military and 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 the rest. Uh, Russian military flights interfering with their civilian aviation, and and therefore I don't expect them to be much perturbed uh, by this uh, uh, type of behaviour. They. Uh, like, obviously anticipated that, that Russia would not react favorably, particularly in the current environment. You know, as Putin started his whole campaign uh, against Ukraine on the pretext that it was all designed to block uh, further rounds of NATO enlargement. Uh, and this is precisely with Finland and Sweden, what may be uh, happening. Uh, but I think they also know that, you know, we've 
Putin very much bogged down in Ukraine at the moment and pouring more and more of his army uh, into the Donbass in an attempt to you know, win some kind of uh, uh, victory. He doesn't really have much left in the tank uh, to mount any kind of campaign uh, against uh, Finland. And certainly what he has left in the tank, in my view, would not be enough to subdue a country like Finland, uh, which has a 1,300 long kilometer border with Russia, five well-armed and well-equipped uh, brigades uh, that uh, are really uh, well prepared for a territorial defense. And you know, obviously Putin knows his history. <laughs> he knows what happened when Stalin invaded Finland twice in World War II and the very spirited resistance that the Finns were able to mount. So I don't believe in the current circumstances that uh, there is any sort of imminent threat uh, of a Russian military uh, reaction. But of course, the propaganda war will go on. That's interesting. Yeah, about the pro the point about the propaganda war, um, you you touched on, but let's let's go deeper into what's happening, um, you know, in Ukraine at the moment. Um, I mean, it's it's well known that Putin wanted to conquer the east and the south by the 9th of May in time for you know his Victory Day parades um, to celebrate the end of World War II, um, and in line with that, he wanted to show, of course, that he'd made significant gains in Ukraine. Um, instead, his troops are bogged down, as you say, in heavy battles. Um, and uh, how do we see these battles, particularly on the eastern and southern fronts, evolving? And what are uh, the military problems that Russian that the Russians are facing? Well, certainly, uh, it's not looking great in terms of seizing a lot of. Uh, more territory and cities vis-a-vis -vis where the Russians were already a couple of weeks ago. But on the other hand, they are sitting on nearly 21% uh, of Ukrainian territory. So since the beginning of the conflict, yes, I mean, they, they have obviously in, enlarged their presence quite significantly, particularly along the Black Sea coast. Um, if uh, the uh, brave resistance of the Ukrainians in the Azov steelworks in Mariupol can be overcome, uh, and obviously they must be those Ukrainian uh, fighters still there, about 2,000 of them. They must be very tired by now. They're running out of food and ammunition. They're surrounded by the Russians. So it's very difficult to see that they can hold on uh, for much longer. And, and you've seen from the TV pictures that the Russians are now trying very hard to capture the steelworks, subdue the last pockets of resistance, and therefore in the next couple of days or so, be completely in charge of Mariupol. Well, Putin could claim that uh, before May the 9th, uh, already a few days away. Uh, as a significant victory because Mariupol means that Russia would then have this contiguous uh, land corridor from the Donbass uh, to Crimea uh, and would therefore be in greater control of the uh, of the Black Sea. Uh, of course, uh, it's taken several weeks and you know, unbelievable destruction of Mariupol uh, and uh, maybe 20,000 people uh, having died in that struggle, if Ukrainian statistics uh, are to be believed. So it's hardly a great military victory, but at least Putin would have something that he could you know, use his propaganda machine to turn into uh, a triumph. Elsewhere, it's not looking so good. I mean, the other Russian objective was Kharkiv in the north. But we hear from Ukrainian sources, which seem to be confirmed by Western intelligence, that uh, the Ukrainians have been pushing the Russians back by as much as 40 kilometers uh, from uh, Kharkiv. Kiev, uh, capturing several villages. So that doesn't look as if it's going to fall anytime soon. 
Uh, that leaves the Russians trying to sort of get something else in the next few days. I mean, Krasnoyarsk, which is an important rail junction, remember the railway station there was uh, bombed recently, several civilians were killed. Uh, that seems to be an objective. Uh, and certainly we hear reports that the Russians are continuing to pull up forces uh, just on their side of the border. For example, uh, a significant helicopter forces, extra uh, battalion tactical groups, as they call them, uh, in order to be able to mount some kind of... Uh, new offensive. But but so far, yes, I mean, the second part of your question, they seem to be still facing the problems they've faced since the beginning, which they haven't sorted out. They don't control the airspace. Uh, the Ukrainians are still using anti-air uh, quite well to shoot down their aircraft. Uh, they are having trouble coordinating their movements. Uh, they haven't yet sorted out the supply li uh, lines uh, uh, issue uh, very well. Uh, they don't really know if they want to fight like Ukrainians in small units along several fronts to try to seize a lot of territory or mass all of their forces uh, for one big strike against one particular target, for example, uh, like uh, Krasnoyorsk. Um, we know that they've lost about 15,000 troops killed thus far, which is more in two months than they lost during the entire decade they were in Afghanistan, about 1,600 military uh, vehicles, uh, dozens of aircraft. So they've taken a hit when it comes to uh, the equipment lost and therefore the equipment that they have to replace. The other thing is that Putin decided very quickly uh, to uh, refocus the Russian effort uh, on the Donbass um, and, and pull the forces away from Kiev and other places in order to do that. But what Western analysts believe is that he didn't really give the Russian army enough time you know, to sort of take a break, uh, to recover, repair the equipment, reorganize. Uh, uh, he needed a victory quickly and maybe he he put the army into the Donbass prematurely uh, before they'd sorted out uh, some of the problems. It's also clear that the, you know, their communications are being intercepted. Uh, the United States is not really making a secret of the fact that it's been able to supply the Ukrainians with an enormous amount of intelligence on the location uh, of the Russian forces, you know, giving away the battle plan in advance, which is helping, of course, the Ukrainians to mount a defense. In fact, a spectacular story out of the New York Times yesterday was that uh, US intelligence has been given, giving uh, to the Ukrainians the locations of the Russian generals in their mobile headquarters, allowing the Ukrainians to kill apparently 12 Russian generals so far uh, in selective targeting strikes. And so as long as, therefore, the Russians are not doing a good job in keeping their tactical secrets and uh, not having secure communications, uh, then uh, clearly they're not making life uh, easy for themselves. But, Tracy, we come back to the question that we've been putting to this podcast for weeks now, which is that, you know, although the Russians are not behaving incompetently, uh, they will keep, you know, plodding on uh, uh, rather like a battering ram. Uh, eventually, no doubt, they will learn from the mistakes and, and start in, in, in improving. You know, every army has to do that uh, e eventually. Uh, and of course, they still continue to have that preponderance in, in manpower and equipment vis-a-vis -vis the Ukrainians. So you would expect that if they keep plodding away, eventually they'll have something to show for their efforts, uh, not by conquering Ukraine. I think that's out of the question now, but at least in terms of consolidating their hold in the uh, in the in, in in the Donbass, and then presumably Putin will say, right, you know, we've secured our objectives uh, and uh, we're now ready to go to the uh, negotiation table uh, to make sure that, you know, we, we keep what we've got. 
So you, you think that we're in for, you know, a bit of a long haul um, still when it comes to, um, you know, the fighting. You, you don't see a sort of end anytime soon. Well, no, I, I don't for a number of reasons. I think the first thing, of course, is that uh, uh, Russia will want to capture more territory to vindicate the decision to invade in the first place uh, uh, and to at least end on a higher note uh, in terms of Putin's uh, uh, prestige. Um, uh, so they will keep going. Uh, for example, Odessa, uh, which is the last remaining significant Black Sea port of, of the Ukrainians, would seem to be a, a, a target, although they need to take Mariupol as said first before they can consider that but they've started if I can use this term softening up uh, Odessa uh, by uh, firing missiles into the city attacking a, a major bridge uh, uh, trying to take the port out of operation the railway system and, and so on to make it harder for Ukraine to uh, resupply and, and defend uh, uh, the city um, no doubt they will have another go at Kharkiv which is the second largest city of Ukraine and uh, the largest Russian speaking uh, center uh, to try to uh, at least have some control of the significant Russian-speaking uh, areas and to expand, you know, the, the, the Donetsk and the Luhansk so-called republics to cover the actual geographical territory uh, of the Donbass it, 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 it itself. So presumably, you know, Putin will you know, declare uh, something on May the 9th. Uh, there's some speculation he may declare a, a war uh, against uh, uh, Ukraine. Of course, it's war already. We know that. Uh, but um, uh, he's been calling it a special military operation thus far. Uh, and if he starts saying it's a war, it gives him a legal basis to start you know, calling up Russian conscripts uh, more, more widely. Um, and of course, you know, to ask the population to tighten the belt, uh, it's a better excuse to explain, you know, sanctions and rising uh, costs of living for the average uh, Russian uh, citizen. Although it has to be said that the Kremlin so far has uh, denied that Putin will declare war on May the 9th. Uh, uh, but I see, but that doesn't mean anything, right? Because uh, the Kremlin also declared back in February that it was not going to invade Ukraine. Uh, yeah. and, and it did. So, But, but certainly, yes, uh, uh, May the 9th is not going to be the end of the military operation. The problem for the Ukrainian side is that they can't afford to settle uh, with where uh, the line is at the moment because they're losing, as I said, 21% of their territory. And uh, from an economic point of view, you know, ports on the Black Sea, mm. uh, important agricultural areas. I mean, last week, Ukrainians were accusing the Russians of seizing vast amounts of Ukrainian grain, which could not only provoke hunger inside Ukraine, but obviously dent uh, exports and further exacerbate the uh, food shortages that we've been talking about in Africa and Middle East, uh, largely dependent upon grain from uh, Ukraine. They lose a lot of their mining uh, uh, and their steelmaking capacity in, in, in the Donbass, so they would end up with a sort of a, a landlocked country, almost, mm -hmm. uh, which would be less uh, viable. And President Zelensky, uh, in his address yesterday, you know, he gives these uh, nightly addresses to the Ukrainian people. He, he tackled this issue, Tracy, and he said very firmly, no, no way are we going to uh, sit down with peace talks with Russia uh, until it evacuates.
against our, our territory. You know, if we're going to be neutral, we want to be neutral like uh, other countries with their territories largely intact and the borders now securely uh, defined, uh, but not, you know, with Russia sitting on a lot of our territory ready uh, in four or five years time to have another offensive uh, and to try to expand further. Uh, and so I don't think either side feels that it's got enough militarily to put itself in a strong position and to go to peace negotiations just yet. So if we do see negotiations, I think it's going to be on things like, you know, what the UN Secretary General Guterres has been trying to do, or the International Red Cross, diplomacy for little things, like you know, evacuation of civilians from Mariupol and things like that, but not a big uh, peace agreement to end the fighting at, at this stage. Also, you know, the Ukrainians will fill with the weapons now flowing in. The, the ones that they've been asking for all along, you know, the heavy weapons from the Western uh, allies, you know, the howitzers, uh, the tanks, the armor personnel vehicles, you know, the heavy duty drones, uh, that, you know, they're going to be in a stronger position and that they, they can get some land back as they've done around Kharkiv. And, and so I don't think they'll see any incentive to give up the fight just yet. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's a very uh, thorough overview. Thank you. I want to um, concentrate now on the sanctions package. Uh, we saw Ursula von der Leyen uh, yesterday, 4th of May, announce in the European Parliament um, that they want to phase out uh, oil by the end of, uh, from Russia, by the end of this year. But Hungary is uh, so far um, saying that it will veto those plans. Um, so where does that leave uh, the sanctions package? Well, I think the EU is under enormous pressure, uh, not just from the United States or the United Kingdom, uh, who, who want the EU really to sort of take decisive action, but, but from some of its own members uh, as, as well, particularly the Scandinavians or the Baltic states uh, that feel that they've done their homework on uh, energy uh, independence, you know, for example, by building liquefied natural gas stations, and that therefore the rest of the EU has to do its sort of energy uh, independence homework uh, as, 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 as well. Um, and uh, oil, of course, is an easier thing for the EU to uh, uh, to ban from Russia uh, than gas because the EU uh, uh, imports a, a much smaller percentage uh, of Russian oil than it does uh, Russian uh, gas. Uh, and, and big countries like Germany, which of course always have a very decisive voice, Tracy, in these matters, uh, uh, find it harder to move on gas, which is you know nearly 50% of their supply from Russia, uh, than oil, which is only 9% of their uh, uh, su supply. Um, so oil is, if you like, the more achievable target. And to some degree, if the EU can deliver on oil, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the US, the UK, the international community, uh, it, it can sort of buy itself a little bit of time to deal with the much more uh, vexatious gas problem, where obviously weaning itself off Russia is possible, but is going to take a, a, a lot more time. Uh, and uh, obviously, oil won't provoke quite the same uh, economic recession in the EU uh, that gas uh, would uh, uh, provoke. So gas, uh, oil is definitely the target. But unfortunately, yes, it's not just Hungary. There's also Bulgaria, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, which also uh, import a high percentage uh, of uh, Russian oil as part of their energy mix. So the Hungarians uh, uh, you know, may want to play, if I can use this word, the bad boys by threatening to uh, veto a collective 
collective decision, but they know that, you know, that behind the scenes, they've got a, a bit of support from uh, other uh, Eastern European members. They're not completely isolated and not uh, uh, alone. I, I, you know, negotiations didn't succeed yesterday, but they're carrying on today. And Tracy, we all know the uh, EU, uh, it, it cranks out a decision at the end of the day. Um, and uh, the possible compromise is giving uh, countries like Hungary uh, a, a, a sort of a, a, a longer lead time uh, to complete the transition. People are talking about the end of 2023 next year, rather than this year, the end of uh, 2022, that you could, you know, maybe uh, uh, ban uh, crude oil imports uh, earlier than refined oil uh, imports. Uh, you could deal with the issue, for example, of the EU, uh, which is being Discuss no longer transporting Russian oil in EU tankers. You know, uh, Royal Dutch Shell, uh, BP uh, have been in the spotlight a little bit uh, for doing uh, precisely uh, uh, that. Um, and so, yes, I would expect, given the stakes here, that uh, that kind of compromise will prevail. And the Hungarians will then not veto a decision in principle, uh, uh, but will claim victory that, you know, uh, Orban recently elected has protected the economic interest of the Hungarian people uh, by allowing them to uh, uh, access Russian oil uh, and adapt over a, a longer period. I mean, as I've said, I think the pressures are intense here because the EU knows very well uh, that it doesn't make sense to be on the one hand, you know, spending billions of dollars uh, shipping weapons off to the Ukrainians and then, you know, give Russia, it's been calculated, up to $48 billion, $48 billion wow, since February the 24th on yeah. gas and oil uh, yeah. sales. Yes, which, you know, vastly uh, uh, outranks what the EU has been providing in terms of the weapons, uh, the costs, uh, and of course fuels Putin's uh, war machine. It, you know, it, it, it's like healing one foot while you're busy shooting yourself in the other foot. So uh, I, I imagine, given the stakes, uh, that uh, a compromise will be reached. But again, you know, the willingness of a country like Germany to make its position clear, France, you know, Italy, also dependent heavily on Russian energy, by the way, you know, uh, will, will, will be key here. So. So uh, it will be a messy Brussels compromise, but that's the way the EU works. The key thing is that the caravan moves on, even if not as quickly or decisively as some of us might hope. And the sanctions in general, I mean, are they having an effect? Well, the problem, Tracy, as you know, is number one, it's very difficult to uh, uh, place sanctions on large countries which have borders with lots of neighbours, um, and, and particularly China in the case of uh, Russia, um, and therefore, you know, have alternative routes and other uh, uh, options. Um, uh, and so, obviously, in the case of a country like Russia, uh, which, uh, you know, has things that we need, oil, gas, or raw materials, potash, fertilizers, all kinds of things, um, um, it's going to take time. You, know, you start with the easy stuff, which doesn't cost you much sacrifice. And then as with oil, you move on to the things that really hurt. And therefore, it becomes more gradual, uh, more painful and, and, and difficult. Um, and Russia, of course, is, you know, the Putin regime may be criminal, but it's not stupid. It's anticipated this uh, happening for many years. You know, there have been lots of meetings in the Kremlin with the Russian banks, you know, on bringing assets home. You remember Putin? Putin ordered the oligarchs a few years ago to repatriate all of their assets, you know, to convert them from dollars into, into, into rubles, uh, you know, to talk to the Chinese.
companies about accessing their banking clearance system as an alternative to SWIFT, uh, you know, trying to diversify their energy market, as Putin has done, by selling more gas uh, to China through the power of Siberia pipeline and another one which is now going to be built from Sakhalin to China. So, you know, the, the, the Russians haven't been able to protect themselves entirely, but they've been able, you know, to take a lot of measures to make themselves uh, less uh, vulnerable. And then, of course, finally, as we all know, sanctions take time to work. In the case of Colonel Gaddafi in Libya, which, of course, is not Russia and a much more vulnerable country, after about 20 years uh, uh, of sanctions, you know, Gaddafi, before uh, he was uh, deposed in the Arab Spring, was finally, you know, ready to hand over terrorists uh, like the ones who were involved in the uh, Lockerbie uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, shooting down of the Pan Am plane. He was finally ready to hand them over uh, and to make his peace with the uh, uh, West. So you have to sort of keep them up in, 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 in the long run. Uh, of course, a, a regime like Putin's as well, where they control public opinion, is less likely to feel, you know, the pushback from public opinion in the way that that would immediately translate into an election in the UK. For example, today we have the local election in the UK, and Boris Johnson may be punished for the high, you know, uh, energy prices and the rise of the cost of living. That's not going to happen to Putin anytime soon. So they can sort of hunker down uh, uh, for, a, for a while. Um, and you have to look at the criminal workarounds, you know, the way in which, you know, private companies, mafia-type networks are used uh, to circumvent the sanctions, particularly when it comes to important things like electronic components for military systems and so on. So in a nutshell, yes, sanctions can work uh, but uh, you need to be there for the long haul and the bigger the country with the more options the longer the long haul uh, becomes. I can't let you go today without um, talking about the recent visit of the UN uh, Secretary General to Moscow and then Kiev that took place last week. Um, and, you know, obviously it doesn't seem that anything has come out of that. And now the Pope is saying that he wants to go um, and, and sort of continue the mediation. Are we nearing the end of diplomacy when the Pope needs to step in? Well, uh, the answer is uh, yes, we are, because uh, the UN, uh, to start with uh, the Secretary General Antonio Guterres, has had some criticism directed at it for not, you know, stepping in immediately, not playing the mediating role, which of course is what we want the UN to do. And uh, I think the UN is under pressure here, not just because of the gravity of the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine and the way it's, you know, leading to a major uh, crisis in uh, food uh, supplies. We were talking about this. Um, uh, and also, of course, you know, leading to a lot more confrontation between author authoritarians like Russia and China uh, and the West. So, you know, it has big geopolitical repercussions beyond simply the humanitarian suffering of the Ukrainian people. But I think also, you know, the UN uh, has, has been having less and less success recently uh, in resolving uh, conflicts. You know, the Security Council has been paralyzed. Uh, lots of countries are sitting on the fence, uh, finding it difficult to, you know, to opt either for the West or the East. They are sort of waiting uh, uh, and seeing. And uh, you, there's academic research that shows that uh, uh, conflicts are going on longer 
um, and, and the UN mediation is, is less effective than it was, say, 20 or 30 years ago in places like the Balkans, where the UN was able to play quite a significant role. The only success the UN has had, really, has been the efforts of the special envoy, Stephanie Williams, uh, in terms of bringing the parties in Libya uh, around the table and negotiating a new government of national accord and elections. But even then, the elections were postponed. And, you know, in places like Ethiopia, in places like Syria, uh, the DRC, you know, Democratic Republic of the Congo, you know, where conflicts have been going on for a long, long time, or, or even now the resumption of tensions between Algeria and Morocco uh, over the Western Sahara, you know, another UN dossier, um, the, there's a feeling that we've been going backwards. So I think, you know, this, this sort of effort of Antonio Guterres to step in uh, uh, comes against this sort of background of an increasing questioning of the utility of the, of the UN and its major role, which of course is to resolve uh, conflicts. And uh, maybe he, he was a a bit slow, but at least uh, finally he went to Moscow and he went to Kiev. And although he obviously hasn't got the parties uh, to sort of sit around the table or Putin, you know, to uh, 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 exercise restraint, uh, he at least, I think, had some success, as I said, with the Red Cross in, tr in opening up these humanitarian cor uh, uh, corridors in Mariupol. Uh, they've not been massive in the sense of, you know, 200, 300 people managing to get out, but at least it, 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 it's, it's something. Um, and uh, the UN, of course, is vital still in its humanitarian role in dealing mm. with refugees and displaced people. But it's going to be interesting to see, you know, to what degree Guterres is now able to be a mediator. So that brings us to the Pope. Yeah, I, I, yes, obviously. Before we, before we get on to the Pope, I just wanted to go back to that first question. Why do you think it's it's taken uh, the UN Secretary General so long to before going to, to Moscow? Do you think it's the history um, that you know that you you mentioned? Uh, you know, what is it? Why why is, why is it taking him so long? Well, I, I suppose you know he always has these credibility to worry about, given you know that role that uh, not you know doing something prematurely, badly prepared, uh, which is seen as a, as a as a failure, and then undermines his own, as I've said, role of credibility as a, a potential future uh, a mediator. Uh, probably yes. I mean, given you know the way in which Putin launched this aggressive war, and, and the fact that you know so many Western leaders like Macron uh, just a couple of days ago, you know, come off the phone with Putin after a two-hour conversation, or, or the Austrian Chancellor who visited recently as well, you know, say, oh, you know, Putin is completely locked in, he's not moving at all, you know, uh, he's not interested, uh, uh, all of my efforts were, you know, like uh, water off a brick wall. So maybe Guterres feels, well, look, you know, if, if that's the sort of mentality of Putin, you know, what uh, additional effort can I make? But of course, if you are the UN Secretary General, uh, you represent the world body, you're not an individual head of state. So as frustrating as it is, you have to be seen to be uh, making uh, 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 an effort um, and show clearly which side you're, 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 you're on. Uh, so I think eventually, you know, there was no choice for, for Guterres, probably knowing that he wasn't going to be initially successful, uh, to have to go. The other thing, of course, with the UN is you tend to send your uh, envoys initially, you know, the Undersecretary for Political Affairs, you know, you've got a number of sort of uh, people under you. 
uh, uh, special envoys, as the UN often uses in regional conflicts, to at least sort of prepare the way before you go in. And I think this is what Guterres has been trying to do. I think also, um, I mentioned Tracy, the humanitarian situation, you know, with 5 million uh, Ukrainians leaving the country, pouring into Eastern Europe, and another 5 million displaced inside the country, probably somebody like Guterres believed that, you know, given the gravity of that, uh, the most urgent thing was to mobilize the UN in its usual you know, humanitarian role. Uh, uh, there is uh, OCHA, the UN Office of Humanitarian Affairs in Geneva, uh, the UNHCR, the Refugee Agency. There's the World Food Programme, by the way, uh, which has been very effective, I have to say, in raising the alarm bell uh, under the dynamic David Beasley, uh, uh, one of the effective heads of the UN agencies, in my opinion, today, uh, you know, to the growing sort of hunger humanitarian crisis uh, provoked uh, uh, by that, uh, by that uh, uh, as well. So I think, you know, Guterres' role was probably, you know, given the the shockwaves to, to deal with those shockwaves, first of all, in terms of the role of the agencies, uh, which sometimes get more visibility than the UN itself. And uh, and then they're only thereafter pick up on the negotiating side. But but it's going to be very interesting to see after, you know, this initial visit, where, of course, he took some criticism from the Ukrainians by going to Moscow first, rather than Kiev, if he's going to sort of, you know, stay engaged in the process. Uh, so, yes, uh, the, the Pope, Pope, Pope Francis. Um, yes, I mean, I, I think you know, you, you get uh, religious popes, uh, 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 and you get politically more activist uh, uh, type of uh, uh, popes. John Paul II, of course, uh, the first Polish pope, uh, immediately comes to mind, and I think Francis seems to be very much in the second uh, uh, category. Uh, but he's on tricky ground here because, uh, in order to make himself uh, acceptable to Putin and, and get this long uh, uh, planned visit to Moscow that he would like to have, uh, he's been quite critical of NATO. He gave an interview the other day, which many people in NATO picked up, where he went along with some of the Russian narrative about blaming the war on NATO enlargement and, you know, NATO poking Russia. I don't think he used that term, but that was very much the, uh, the, the line. Uh, and uh, some Western observers may think that, you know, this isn't really uh, either fair or particularly uh, accurate, uh, uh, you know, about the situation. Um, and, uh, you know, if you're a negotiator, you have to, yes, sometimes ingratiate yourself, but not just with one side, right? So I think, you know, there is a, an element here that, that uh, uh, the Vatican needs to be mindful uh, of. Uh, you know, let's get the historical narrative uh, clear here. Um, uh, the second thing uh, uh, is that, you know, he, he's also, he, for example, he had a meeting yesterday with the Japanese prime minister, uh, uh, Fashida, uh, who was visiting uh, the Vatican, where, uh, uh, you know, looking at uh, the memory of uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, he was quite critical of nuclear weapons and uh, gave his support for the treaty to ban nuclear weapons. And again, people on the NATO side, because NATO is committed to nuclear deterrence, uh, may feel, you know, the Pope's hostility to nuclear weapons as a form of deterrence against other nuclear powers isn't necessarily particularly helpful as, as, as well. So uh, if the the Pope can do things uh, which others can't do, uh, that would be very, very good. But I think it's not negotiation or mediation for uh, uh, the sake of it uh, and keeping your credibility with the Western side as well as trying to build credibility with somebody like Putin. Uh, it has to be very important in, in this uh, effort uh, as well. 
Thank you to our senior fellow, Jamie Shea, for joining me this week. And of course, thank you to you, our listeners, for tuning in to episode 11 of this Frankly Speaking special on the war in Ukraine. Next week, we will be live from Zagreb for our European Young Leaders Seminar, when we will talk about the protection of journalists, propaganda and disinformation. So do join us next week.